Good morning. I'll bring to you the Bible passage this morning, taken from John verse, John chapter 16, verse 1 to 16. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this, so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Brother, you are filled with grief, because I have said those things. But very truly I will tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of the truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I say the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Jesus went on to say, In a little while, you will see me no more, and then after a little while, you will see me. That's the message of the day. Thank you. Morning, everyone. Thank you, Amy. Happy Father's Day to everyone. Thank you. Happy Grandfather's Day and Happy Special Uncle's Day. Well, there are special uncles. There are guys who are not married and they have, I don't know, sisters or brothers or something that have kids and so they're uncles and they are special uncles. They are significant in those kids' life. That's true, isn't it? Well, it's Special Uncle's Day to you. <laughs> Sorry? Tomorrow. That day's tomorrow after Father's Day. It's an interesting theology, young Daniel, that you have. I have one daughter, Kate, and I have one granddaughter, Eleanor, and Eleanor loves Kate. Absolutely madly passionate about Kate, just lights up the room when Kate comes into it, but now Kate's got a boyfriend. And now Eleanor goes, Is Dan coming? And Kate is dismissed. Let's pray for Kate, shall we? <laughs> Actually, you can pray for Kate. We went and saw her yesterday because it's her birthday coming up and it was Eleanor's birthday a couple of weeks ago and it's Father's Day today. So I went down to get my present. I went down to see my kids. <laughs> and uh, Katie had developed during the week one of those things, a cough, a bad cough, and we actually thought she had whooping cough. And she still may have whooping cough, though I am greatly encouraged I don't think she does but I'm not medically trained, so I don't know, so I just hope she doesn't. So 
pray for her. She finds out tomorrow. She had the tests and stuff. She went to hospital last week because she couldn't breathe. She's on Ventolin. She's on antibiotics, yada, yada, yada. Um, and so if she does have it, then I guess... Uh, where's Rhonda? She would have been contagious when we saw her yesterday. Huh. You might pray for me. I'm pretty sure no sin will go near Rhonda, but you need to pray for me. And we need to pray for our governments and those in authority over us. It's a very serious issues before us that will have ongoing impact for us. The future's not looking too bright, is it? Economically, but nor morally. And so we as God's people have a right, an obligation, a duty to be a people of prayer who will pray and ask God for God's will to be done in this world through his people by people making righteous, godly decisions. I saw your brother at the conference, Joy. He says, hello. I'm going to pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that we can gather together. We thank you as we have. I thank you too for your word, for your spirit, and for your people. Lord, as we have read, there is a time coming when people who think they are acting on your behalf will do that which is against your will. Lord, you have warned us to prepare us. We thank you that you have given us your spirit and we pray that as we think more about him and learn more about him, that he in fact might be um, the ruler in us, directing us in the footsteps and the paths of the Lord Jesus. I ask, Heavenly Father, for our leaders that you might give them courage and wisdom, give them common sense that they might make right decisions, godly decisions, and to stand opposed to that which some want to talk about so loudly of same-sex marriages. But I pray that you might give our leaders an understanding and a boldness to be able to vote that which is right according to your will and purpose. I pray too for my daughter Kate, Lord, that you might raise her up, deliver her from this awful disease and she's not alone there are many others who need your healing touch and we remember heavenly father the people in great need in east africa and ask that you might resource them that you might minister to them through your people through us and lord we pray for those in authority in that place that you might change them remove them that the doors might be open for the aid which has been given to reach the people in great need. And we ask, Heavenly Father, this morning for ourselves that you might minister to us, teach us, speak to us by your Spirit, that we might follow the Lord Jesus very closely. We pray in his name. Amen. We're going to begin a series over the next four weeks, or thereabouts, I'm not sure how long it will go for, of uh, focusing upon the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're going to do that in the morning service. It's coming as a, a request that came out of a couple of different people, uh, some of the folk in this congregation, who said, we never talk about the Holy Spirit. I said, no, we're Baptists. We don't believe in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I didn't say that. I said, uh, okay. Uh, and they had some questions about gifts and tongues and things like that. Um, so when we come to talk about tongues, David will do that talk. When we come to talk about the gifts... <laughs> David will do that talk when we come to talk about... (laughs) Uh, David will do that talk. Uh, 
Um, well, he, he needs to settle in, you know. And <laughs> David's actually doing a series at night on the Holy Spirit, so some of you have been attending that. And if you have, then great. If you haven't, then you can certainly access that online and hear uh, some very good, solid teaching, as David's outlined it. Uh, he's going to do some of that in the morning services, but he'll combine some of those in some fashion because the morning services are shorter than the evening services. Um, but we want you to learn and to grow uh, and to focus upon the person of the Spirit at least for the next, whatever it is, four, five, six weeks. I don't know. We'll, I'll, David and I will talk and plan something this week and be a bit clearer. Um, and then after that we will return to uh, working our way through Bible books we were going to continue to Judges but we'll do that at night I think and we were going to do 2 Timothy at the evening but we'll do that probably in the morning we'll reverse them so we continue to work through Bible books it'll be New Testament, Old Testament it's just that I didn't want to do Old Testament in the morning for the next 20 years and the New Testament in the evening for the next 10 years I just wanted to alternate them like that Okay, so you get a smattering of both um, but all spirit-filled, godly Christians come to church twice on Sunday. That's right, isn't it? Sinners need to come to church twice. So it's, it's lovely to have you here this morning and trust that you have a significant day remembering Father's Day. As I said this morning and forgot to announce this morning, to be aware, of course, not everybody has a great father. We can all have a great father in our Heavenly Father whom earthly fathers are to uh, model. But sadly, in this very fallen world, bad things happen and sometimes some fathers get way off course and get astray. So I am conscious of that and please be aware and pray for those who have suffered at the hands of cruel fathers. But our Heavenly Father is not cruel and he loves us. Holy Spirit, tell me everything you know about the Holy Spirit. I won't have to say anything. He's God. He's one. He's a spirit. <laughs> Two. And he's holy. Thank you. <laughs> We're done. Let's pray. Peter, I think you said something. He's a person and, he's a th- and he is the third person. It's interesting how we say that, the third person. Who's the first person? God. Well, the New Testament does that too. The New Testament will often talk about God, and by God they mean the Father in some contexts. In other contexts, the word God can in fact mean the triune God, Father, Son and Spirit. But I reckon most Christians, most Christians that I know anyway, tend to think of the Trinity as God the Father, number one. Jesus, the Son of God, number two. Below. Yeah, he's not. I'm not saying what I believe, I'm saying what other fools, other people believe. And then I think some people then go third, and the third person of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. And the numerical thing is not that important, uh, but it's more for the understanding, the false understanding, the Spirit is in some way perhaps inferior to, or less than, the Father and the Son. That is not correct, that's error. The Bible teaches us that God is triune. He is three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, Spirit, Son, Father, Son, Spirit, Father. It doesn't matter the order. The New Testament occasionally will change the order and we'll look at a little bit of that this morning as we fly through. Um, But all three are equal. 
And I don't believe, now this is a theological debate, but in my opinion, and uh, I don't think there's a hierarchy within the Trinity. The Father is not more important than. He is a person equal to the other two. There are certainly distinctions of function. They each may take the lead on different things, but I think you will struggle to find that there is one thing that one of the persons of the Trinity does that the other two are not in some way, fashion or form involved in. They do it together. Even Jesus' death on the cross, the Bible talks about that God, the Father, was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. There is some way that they are acting together on behalf of one another and together in this process. Now it's a mystery and we can't be too dogmatic about it, but so we want to focus upon that member of the Trinity who is called the Holy Spirit. He is not a force, he is a he. That's another common error that I hear where people talk about the Spirit as an it. You can receive it. The New Testament doesn't do that. It always refers to him as a person, he. And in this passage that we had read to us, the Lord Jesus does exactly that. I'm going away from you and if I do, then I'm going to send you another counsellor, an advocate, another, however that word is translated for you. He will teach you. He will lead you. He is a he. Um, And he's not an energy or an influence of God's activity in the world, as some sects believe, but he, in fact, is God at work in our world. So he is a person. Three things I want to say. He is a person. He is a divine person. He is God. And he is essential to us as we follow the Lord Jesus. So three simple truths. Number one, he is a person. He has the qualities of a person. You ever stop to think about that? What's a person? Define a person. Well, a person has to have some sort of independent and freedom to be able to think, feel and choose themselves. And he has all of those. The Bible tells us that he is a person who thinks. He has intelligence and he has a mind. He searches the deep things of God. He's the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, of knowledge and of counsel. These words are used of him. In eight, Romans 8.27 talks about uh, the spirit of God is one who not just communicates but according to the mind of the spirit. He is a person who feels. In Ephesians 4.30 he, is a, he can be grieved He is offended and hurt by. That's an amazing reference. There are others as well that talk about the emotional component or side to the divine being. I draw issue, as I have said before, with the Westminster Confession of Faith that defines God as a person without body parts or passion. And I don't agree. I don't think God is without passion. I think I understand what they're trying to say, but I think they say it incorrectly God is a God who is passionate he feels deeply and the spirit of God as a person and as a divine person can be grieved and finally he can decide, he has a will he chooses, he analyses he evaluates, he determines Acts 13 verse 2 talks about how he's talking to the leaders of the church and he, he speaks to them and says, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas to the job, the duty that I've called them to. So somehow the spirit in the early church was communicating with the church, the early leaders. That's what Jesus says too, doesn't he? About Listen to what the spirit is saying to the churches. Revelations chapters 2 and 3. The Holy Spirit calls, so he decides. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 11 talks about how we have spiritual gifts 
and they are distributed to us as the Spirit determines. We'll come back to this, certainly, that we don't choose our gifts. The Spirit of God chooses which gifts we receive to serve the body of Christ. So he is a person. He thinks, he feels, he decides. He acts like a person. He does all the things that people do. He guides, he convicts, he prays, he searches, he forbids, he speaks, he loves, he commands, all of these sorts of things. In fact, this one reference in uh, Acts 16, he forbids. Paul is trying to go into Bithynia or some other place and it says the Spirit forbade them, hindered them, stopped them. The Spirit actively at work. We'll come back to that at the end where I think that indicates the Spirit is in fact the Lord of the harvest one of the indications of it. And he is a person who thinks, feels, decides, he acts like a person, but he is also a person who can be acted against. He can be blasphemed. It's the unforgivable sin. It's the only sin that can't be forgiven, won't be forgiven. He can be lied to, Acts 5. Why has Satan filled your heart? To lie to the Holy Spirit. He can be tested, resisted, grieved, quenched and insulted. All phrases the New Testament uses in all different contexts and places. So these dimensions indicate he is a person and he is to be honoured as a person and particularly as a divine person to be worshipped and glorified. Can you pray to the Spirit? Can you worship the Spirit? Are we to glorify the Spirit? Some evangelicals debate this. We'll come to it at the end. He is a divine person. He is fully God. In fact, the New Testament says that he calls him God, not on lots of occasions, but just like it calls the Father God, just like it calls Jesus God. So there are places in the New Testament where the Spirit of God is called God. Acts chapter 5. Peter, in that passage I just alluded to, verse 3, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And in verse 5, in verse 4 rather, at the end of it, it says, How is it that you have contrived this deed in your hearts? You didn't lie to us, but to God. Satan filled your hearts, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And the next verse is, you lied to God. The Holy Spirit and God are equated. He's called God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we are called the temple of God. We're called the temple of the Spirit of God. It's, again, an allusion to the truth, based upon the truth, the Spirit is God. Now I know you know these things. If you've got a Bible, flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. Here is a great reference, if you're talking to Jehovah's Witnesses or whoever else. The Spirit of God is called the living God in the Bible. Chapter 6, verse 16. Um, where Paul, again, is talking about uh, we as followers of Jesus, believers ought not to mix and mingle with unbelievers in terms of entering into covenants or too close a relationship. We need to be very careful. He says in verse 16, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple of the Spirit of God. We are the temple of the living God. And that's alluding, referring to the Holy Spirit, the living God, Paul calls him. Or back in chapter 3 of the same book, chapter 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Lord is the Spirit. He's called Lord. In fact, 
often even in the Old Testament you get this illusion, but you'll get it very clearly in the New Testament. The things that Yahweh does, that the Lord does in the Old Testament, leads Israel, uh, speaks through the prophets, are, we are told by latter prophets, by Isaiah and by the New Testament, that the Lord is the Spirit of God who does this. The Lord led Yahweh, in, uh, led Israel, Yahweh led Israel. In Isaiah 63, it's the Spirit of God who is leading Israel. The Spirit of God is Yahweh. The Spirit of God is God. And there are many occasions like that where you can draw these parallels one with the other. Uh, second point, or next, to prove that he is a divine person, he is equated with the Father and the Son. And it's amazing. All the way through the New Testament, you'll get this threefold reference allusions in very quick summary or allusions to each other. If you've got a Bible, turn to Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Uh, the famous ones are the Great Commission. Go into all the world, make disciples, baptise them in the name, singular, baptise them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. You see? Three of them mentioned together. The same with the benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit. Jesus, God and Spirit. And that's one of those references where the word God is referring to the Father. Galatians 4, 6. You get this sort of, it's almost like a side comment, but it's based upon a very clear understanding that God is triune. It took the church ages to come to the clear articulation of it, because it's a mystery, but it's very strongly there in the New Testament. It's not that the church invented the teaching of the Trinity, it's rather that they were exposed to the truth of it, and they almost absorbed the truth of it before they clearly articulated it. Galatians 4.6 says... And because you are children, God, Father, has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You see, that's trifold reference again. God, Spirit, Son. You get it all the way through the New Testament. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 is another one. Ephesians chapter 1, it's in large paragraphs. Or at the end of Jude, Jude 20 and 21, he says, but you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Look forward to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Spirit, God, Jesus. Intermingle. And the Spirit is often linked in. He is not just a person. He is a divine person very clearly in the New Testament and even alluded to in the Old. The names that are given to him remind us of his deity. He's called the Holy Spirit. He's called the Eternal Spirit. He's called the Spirit of Glory. He's called the Spirit of Life, the Spirit of Truth, the Spirit of Grace, the Spirit of Wisdom. All of these are divine names, titles, given to him because he is God. He, like God, is omniscient, omnipresent and omnipotent, all-knowing, everywhere present, present everywhere and all-powerful. If you look carefully at your Bible, you'll find out that he's involved at creation. He is there at the incarnation. Jesus, in fact, is the Spirit of God comes upon Mary, which leads to the Lord, the Son of God having a body, the Lord Jesus. The incarnation, he's there at the resurrection, Romans 8.11. It's the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead who dwells in us, and if he raised Jesus, he'll raise us because he dwells in us. It's the Spirit who inspired the Scriptures. It's the Spirit who brings us to new life. It's the Spirit who sanctifies us to become like Jesus through his fruit in our life. It's the Spirit who calls us to ministry, who appoints elders over the church and who empowers us for witness. All of these activities are the activities of God. The Holy Spirit is God. He is a person. He is a divine person. 
Thirdly, last point, then three points of application. He is essential. He is absolutely essential to us. Without the Holy Spirit, we cannot be saved. Jesus says, and, uh, unless you are born of water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's the Spirit, from John chapter 16, who convicts us, who uh, impels us, who brings us to life in Christ. In Romans chapter 8, it's the Holy Spirit who gives us assurance. He bears witness with our spirits that we belong to him, that we are sons or daughters of God. It's the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, who helps us to be holy, sanctifies us. It's his fruit being demonstrated. He's the one who enables us to understand the Bible. It's through the Spirit that we are prompted to pray. It's through the Spirit that we are given gifts to serve. It's through the Spirit that we are empowered to witness, Acts 1, verse 8. Three really quick things. He is a permanent resident. He is the one who fully empowers us, and he is the one who encourages us. He is a permanent resident. He is given to us when we repent, believe and accept Jesus to be our saviour, confess him to be Lord, acknowledging our debt and receiving his payment when we enter into that saving relationship with God through Jesus. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of the Father comes and dwells within us. The God of the Old Testament who was above us who came and dwelt with us in the person of the Son, Emmanuel, God with us, becomes the God who is within us by his Spirit. That's what Jesus says in John 14. He is with you and he will be in you. We are temples of the Holy Spirit, temples of God. He is a permanent resident. You can't lose him. He doesn't leave you. Once you belong to him, you belong to him. He keeps you. Does that mean we don't stumble or stray? No, we can, but he will pursue us and keep us. Does it mean that we'll always feel his presence? No, we can lose the sense of his presence, particularly because of sin or disobedience, but he is still there because he promises never to leave us or forsake us, continually to work upon us. So he is a permanent resident. He powerfully empowers us, Acts 1.8. One of the mistakes I think of Christianity is, and it's so easy to fall into, is that we rely upon ourselves, we rely upon our own ingenuity, the energy of the flesh and the ways of the world. We're so keen to get things done, we try to do it in our own strength. But the New Testament points us to another source of power, that we are to rely upon him. We are to call upon God in the name of the Lord Jesus and relying upon his indwelling spirit to empower us, to open doors, to convict, to change. We are to rely upon him. And then finally, thirdly, quickly, he is the one who encourages us. He is the comforter, he is the advocate, he is the helper. He is the one who whispers to us, who prompts us, who knocks on, taps us on the shoulder, who knocks on the door of our heart, who is achieving God's purposes in the world. He is the active spirit. And the reason he became resident within us as followers of the Lord Jesus is because he wants to be the president of us. He dwells within to reign over. He is Lord. Romans 15 verse 13, it's a beautiful verse, says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. Why? so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust in him so that your life might overflow with hope by the power of his spirit within. The Holy Spirit within us. Resident, president, will be having an impact. There is an overflow of our life where others will see. Two people were walking along once, a Christian and a non-Christian. Both had a mutual friend, a third party. And they were talking about the third party. It was actually a lady. Her name was Mary. And these two were talking. And the non-Christian says to the Christian person, how do you account for the change in Mary? Mary had become a believer, a Christian, and had been transformed. It was one of those strong conversions. She was now just radiant with the life of God within her. And this person thought, here is a great opportunity, and they explained the gospel and all of that. But it wasn't making sense, so he gave this illustration. He said, when I was in Europe, I grew up in Europe, um, in the particular village city where we lived, there was this magnificent old castle. And as a young boy, I used to go out into the woods and sit on the riverbank, and I used to look across the riverbank into this magnificent castle. Um, and he said, and I could always tell what was going on in the castle by the number of lights that were on in the castle. If the family was there by themselves, then there'd be a light on here and a light on there, and very faint light maybe coming out of the other, filtered light through the other windows. It's just the family at home. When there was a party, though, or there were many other guests, then there would be more lights on. But he said there was one occasion where there was a royal member who visited, and on that occasion every light in the place was on and even the lights outside the ground were on it was magnificent, it was beautiful and then his point to this person on their way was simply to say when there was a royal member dwelling within, resident then it became very clear by the radiance of the castle so how do I explain the radiance, the change in Mary it's because there is a royal resident dwelling within She is in touch with the living God who is transforming her. Well, brothers and sisters, I think that's what we ought to be like. That's what I ought to be like. Transformed. We ought to be radiant with the life of the Lord Jesus. That's why he becomes resident within us, that his fruit might become evident in us. Not perfectly, and I say that by way of just acknowledging the reality, because we live in a fallen world. That's the goal. That's what we are to become. That people are to know by the way we speak, by the way we act. It might surprise you, in fact, that the non-Christians do watch you. This is a complete aside and time's going, but there was an occasion when I used to play football and I was just a, a brand new Christian, three or four years old, and madly passionate about Jesus. And What I wasn't aware of is that all my non-Christian mates knew that I was a Christian, but I didn't know that they knew. And there was a time when the coach left, he couldn't be there, and so he put me in charge. And so then I had to bluff these guys, to which they counted immediately, you won't do that because you're a Christian. And I went, bother. Oh no, no, that's good. That surprised me. They knew. They saw something in me that I wasn't even aware that they knew. That'll be true of you too. As you follow the Lord Jesus authentically and sincerely, it affects the way you speak, it affects the way you act towards others, it affects the actions that you make. When it's real, it does. So we are to 
have the spirit within us. He's resident in us in order that he might be the president, the leader. Um, we are to walk in the spirit. That's how the New Testament describes it. Perhaps if I share with you this little poem I came across, which I think is very effective. You see, the spirit of God who is holy comes and lives within us who are not holy. And so now we have a spirit within us, a sinful nature, and we have the Holy Spirit, and these two are at war with each other, Galatians chapter 5. And this little poem was talking about that reality. Two natures beat within my chest. The one is foul, the other blessed. The one I love, the one I hate. The one I feed will dominate. The one I feed will dominate. If I feed my sinful nature, that will dominate. That will become evident. If I feed... Um, the spirit of God that doesn't sound right, within me, if I walk in obedience, if I am sensitive to his promptings, if I am making choices where I am choosing to please him, do God's will, God's word, God's way, uh, then he will dominate my life. The lights will go on in the castle. It will become more evident that he dwells within, not by our own power. That's the first point of application. This Holy Spirit is a person, he is a divine person, he is essential to us, and therefore we are to walk in submission to his residency, his presidency within. Second point of application, we need the Holy Spirit to empower us that we might be effective for the Lord Jesus. We can't do it in our own strength. The Lord Jesus, the Son of God, in human flesh, relied upon the indwelling spirit. He did not rely upon his own self. If Jesus did that, how much more do we need to do that? It's a deliberate choice. It's a daily choice. It's an hourly choice. John Burke uses the example of, um, what's he call it, the 60-60 plan where people with watches or phones or alarms or whatever set your alarm for every 60 minutes and the alarm will sound beep, 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 beep and at that sound of that alarm it's a reminder. Turn your attention and your life back into the control of God. And they did it for 60 days, every 60 minutes for 60 days in their church and some people have done it and been transformed by it. He also tells the stories of how some people did it and it surprised them by how often they're right in the middle of a tirade when their alarm goes off to remind them. It's not a bad reminder. Some people find that helpful. Some people will find it restrictive. Jesus ministered in the power of the Spirit, Luke 4 verse 14. In fact, Luke 4 18 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, and he has anointed me. He sent me. Jesus ministered in the power of the Spirit. Jesus said, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, by whom then do your sons cast them out? If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, Jesus did it in reliance upon the Spirit. And so that's the example for us. We, like Jesus, need the Spirit. We need to be in submission to him in our life. And if we are, then he will do one thing. He will always point us towards the Lord Jesus. He'll point us to glorifying him and to honouring him. Which brings me to my last point that I raised before. Ought we to pray to the Spirit? Can we pray to the Spirit? Are we commanded to pray to the Spirit? Um... Yes, yes, no. Ought we to pray to the Spirit? Can we? Yes, we can. How can you pray to the Spirit? There are no biblical examples of anybody who prayed to the Spirit. Well, probably that's correct. But I'm going to give you two verses where I think, oh, maybe 
But forgetting the biblical instructions, we are certainly not commanded to pray to the Spirit. There is no clear command to do so, and so therefore it is not a sin for us not to do so. But because he is God, because he is a divine person, therefore, as God, he is to be worshipped and glorified. And the church has consistently taught that in all of its dimensions, that the Father, the Son and the Spirit are all together to be worshipped and glorified, to be honoured. And therefore, theologically, logically, we can and may pray to the Spirit. It is not a sin to do so. It's not inappropriate to do so. But we are not commanded, so we are not obligated to do so. Are there any examples of the Spirit being prayed to? Well, let me give you two. I'll give you my best one first. Matthew chapter 9, verse 38. Now, bear in mind, they're going to be very subtle and it's going to be based upon interpretation. And so you may very well differ from me in how you read it, but that's okay. You think what you think is the best, I'll think what he thinks is the best. Sorry. Matthew 9.38, the Lord Jesus is talking about the harvest and him having compassion for the people and they're like sheep without a shepherd. And then he says to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the labourers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out labourers into his harvest field. Pray to the Lord of the harvest, ask him, Lord, send out more labourers, please. Question, who is the Lord of the harvest? So there's the interpretation again. My answer? I think it's the Holy Spirit. I think the Holy Spirit is the Lord of the harvest. He is the one who appoints elders. He is the one who says, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas to the work that I have called them to. He is the one who gives gifts. He is the one who empowers evangelists. He's the Lord of the harvest. And Jesus is saying, pray to the Lord of the harvest. The Lord of the harvest can't be the Lord Jesus in that verse. Jesus is not saying, pray to me. He could have, but I don't think he did. I think the Lord of the harvest in that verse is the Spirit, and I think that's the Lord Jesus saying, Pray to the Spirit. Ask him to raise up labourers and to send them out. And if you think, well, that's not very clear. No, no, that's as clear as it gets, though. Yeah, he does, but that's not the Spirit. That's his own Spirit. We'll have a chat in a minute. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5 is the next clearest revelation I can give on this. And even I think this one is perhaps not as helpful as that one. But outside of that, then you'll draw the conclusion there is no example or command in the New Testament in the Bible of people praying to the Spirit. These are the only two exceptions I've been able to come across. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 5 says, um, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. You see, there is that threefold reference again, Father, Son, Spirit. And here it's, may the Lord, who's the Lord? Direct your hearts to the love of God. Well, I assume the love of God there would be the Father. And to the steadfastness of Christ, that's the Son. So by analogy, therefore, the first reference to Lord must be the Spirit. May the Lord, may the Spirit direct your hearts to the love of God and steadfastness of Christ. Well, that's not praying. Well, it's close. May the Lord, it's like Paul's, you know, like I said, that's as close as I can get. 
outside of that, then you'd have to draw the conclusion, as many others have, very good Bible commentators and theologians would say, there is no reference to the Holy Spirit being prayed to in the New Testament. And like I said, they're the, only, they're the closest to that I can find. And if you think mm, that's a bit vague, well, that's okay. You're allowed to draw that conclusion because many other thousands of people have. What does all of this mean for us? The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not an it. He is a he. He's not a male. He is a person who is a divine person, equal to the Father and the Son, who is very gentle. His fruit, which demonstrates the character of the Lord Jesus, is wanting to be grown in us. His gifts, which are the abilities of God and the person of Jesus, are distributed to us. That we each have a different ability which he gives us to represent Jesus as a group to the world. He is at work in us. What's the application for us this morning? Well, he is essential to us. We need to rely on him, walk with him. We need to submit to him, confessing Jesus is Lord. That will please the Spirit because that's what work he does. He will take that which belongs to Jesus, which is given to him by the Father, and he'll make it known to us that we might glorify the Father, honour the Son, and please him. Let's pray together. Lord, it's a revelation which is clearly beyond us, but which is magnificent, that you are triune and therefore eternally in relationships of submission and of love, fellowship, and that you, by your plan, have acted to include us and that you allow us to call you Father because we are members of your family and that the Son pays our debt and that the Spirit indwells us, transforming us, empowering and equipping us that we might make evidence to others around us of your reality. Lord, may you have your way in our lives. May our knees bend. May our hearts be open and may our hands be available to be your servants. Dear Holy Spirit, I pray that you might fill us, teach us and transform us to the honour and glory of Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray.